0: Hey, friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we're talking all things resilience and revolution. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry.
1: And I'm your other host, Trishes.
0: And today we're coming in a bit heavy. We don't know when this is going to air just yet, but just so you know, if it feels a little different, it is kind of different. Because right now, the whole world is watching the war, the ongoing war going on in the Middle East. And um, so we're bringing that into the space just so you know that if it feels a little heavy, we are a little heavy but we're going to make it through together. Today, we have a very special guest. Rebecca Price is with us. Rebecca is a wellness advocate, yoga instructor, and meditation teacher and wellness entrepreneur that draws on her wealth of knowledge of working in underserved, marginalized, racialized, and immigrant communities in Canada, the United States, and the Caribbean. Uh, Rebecca is a badass. She's got a whole lot going on. You've probably seen her work in in Refinery29, Well and Good, The Cut, Essence Magazine, and Reader's Digest. She's also how do we say this um she's taught for nike shopify footlocker again just
1: she's all over the place
0: now uh so thanks for joining us rebecca
2: no problem thank you for having me (sighs) maybe we should just take like a deep breath how about that right let's do it kind of like wellness coach over
1: here thank you okay (laughs) so
2: um we're just gonna take a nice deep breath and we're going to exhale it. And if we want to sigh, we can sigh. If we just want to breathe hard, we can breathe hard. Let's start by taking a nice deep inhale through our nose, allowing breath to land all the way in our belly. And when we feel ready, we'll just go ahead and exhale it out.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you, Rebecca. That was very nice.
0: That was so great.
2: I'm a big proponent of always breathing and anchoring into your breath, it's like super important especially as racialized people we don't breathe enough so
1: yeah
0: i mean why don't we start there why
2: (laughs) do we have enough time for the why Um, (laughs) um but you know i just think that in general a lot of us are just living in a state of like surviving Yes. Right. And um, in order for us to survive, we have to compromise parts of who we are and our bodies. And one of the first things that go out the window is breath. As far as I'm concerned, we Mm -hmm. don't, we're not, when we're babies, we breathe better than as we age and become an adult. And we feel things like trauma and live in systems that oppress us, that our breath is something that becomes more shallower and shallower and shallower. And eventually we lose, that anchor that's there to kind of like guide us throughout life. So
0: we we take it for granted because this yeah. is an involuntary function of the body. Yeah, mm. but you're saying that we need to we need to take time to breathe more deeply. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think that we have so much tools that our body gives us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we embody some somatic practices. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and One of the coolest things about breath is that it's there, it's free, um, and it's collective, (laughs) right? Like, you know, because people think, like, come on, I'm in wellness, so like everything you have to pay for, right? So um, (laughs) to be able to do practices that are accessible and free, right, Um, Mm -hmm. as long as you're able to access your breath, um, and for those who can't access the breath at the capacity that they would like to, just being able to access it at whatever capacity you can is something better than nothing, right? But, um, yeah. you know, being able to tap into our breath and hold space for ourselves in those moments yeah. is really important. And I don't necessarily think that, um, we've been taught that as a tool now, everybody's mm-hmm. like getting into breath and breath work. Cause it's like fashionable and it's a fad mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the, the, the item on the menu that everybody wants to try, but, mm-hmm. you know, I really hope that that's a tool and a resource that stays longer than just, you know, a passing fancy And something that people recognize that your breath is, I always say, like, whenever I teach, allow your breath to anchor you through and guide you through this practice, this practice we call life, right? So it's not just practice of showing up on the mat, but the practice of being able to, like, if you feel overwhelmed, like, exploring Mm. how your breath feels, right? If you feel angry, how does your breath feel? Like, if you want to create space and expand, like, how do you do that? And, you know, accessing your breath to be able to, to provide you the opportunity to just be.
0: Yeah.
1: I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about how we make these spaces more accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know practices like, like yoga or community practices, um, and that the, you know, it, it didn't begin under capitalism. There wasn't like the exchange of, of money for the practice. Um, and it's really unfortunate that black and brown people don't have access to a lot of these indigenous practices made by black and brown people. Mm. Um, how how can we help make these practices more accessible? Like, I know you you were talking about the breathing. Are there other things that we can do?
2: I just feel like, um, you know, you, you touched on it when, when you acknowledged the fact that a lot of these modalities that we practice in wellness in particular are practices that are cultivated in community, right? Um, and and it, it becomes a little bit more difficult when we're removed from that, like physically removed from that, and then, you know, um, removed from it in terms of like, when we think about who are the quote, unquote, experts, who are the guides, who are all these things. And so, When you're stripped of all that, it becomes really hard for you to see yourself um, in these spaces or in these practices. Um, And so like a lot of my work has centered on creating space. So Mm -hmm. for me, I thought of when I went to do my yoga teacher training, it was all about creating spaces for people who look like me. Um, You know, people like my mom, who was a single parent who worked like three jobs just to make ends meet um, and who died at a very early age. Personally, I believe because, you know, she got cancer, but I also think the yeah. cancer was something that was because she was so busy surviving, not thriving. Yes. And we tend to forget that a lot of these practices that, you know, meditation, yoga, <clears throat> kijong, like all these things are done in community. Like when you go to the park, sometimes you see a lot of Asian people in the park doing Tai Chi, like in community. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yeah. therefore it's like a community practice and an individual practice, self-care is community care and community care is self-care, right? Um, And so really recognizing that. And so things that I've done is, you know, create accessible classes, right? Um, Allowing people to meet themselves where they're at, not putting any rules and conditions around like um, how you show up to a practice. Um, Mm -hmm. Also understanding that like a lot of people who come to my classes might be single or solo parents. And so creating space Mm -hmm. for them to be able to have that moment for themselves. Space for their children to coexist in the same environment with them, so that they don't feel that mom guilt or that guilt around kind of like pouring into themselves. Um, Creating opportunity for people to access programming um, on a sliding scale or an accessible scale. Like I've never turned anyone away from my classes because they couldn't afford to, Um, and that's why I specifically focus on the communities that I focus on. Because for me, wellness isn't something that's supposed to be only exclusive or held for people who are positions of power and privilege but wellness should be something that's accessible for all because when we practice wellness it's like tools for a liberation and that's why all these tools were created in the first place right in community for collective liberation for collective and individual sovereignty and sometimes I think that gets lost in you know the commodification um, of of all these modalities and how they show up And, and not just like practices like yoga or Um, Also, just thinking about things um, as sacred as food, right? Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, lately, I've been having conversations about like, hey, like, CMOS is something that shouldn't cost so much money, right? Right. Um, Right. Especially when it's something that we drink at home, like it's nothing, right? And just thinking about those things and how all of a sudden, when somebody Grasp onto the, this idea or this concept of how now that is something that's further removed from the community that you know it belongs to or not necessarily belongs right. to but where it came from right or originated yeah. from and so just really thinking about those pieces and then also you know a lot of my work has been centered around like examining what reparations could look like in, in wellness like we think reparations of only one dimensional but also thinking about like if we're having all these conversations about decolonization and systemic mm. oppression and all these things like that that's great but then it stops there so then how as an industry can we repair the harm that is done from the 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 practices that we've culturally appropriated and and, and commodified and things like that so what does reparations look like in wellness does that look like a studio owner Um, teaching and training and and helping someone who's a a person of color or occupies a space of marginality to like become a studio owner? Like, what does that look like? How are we we creating systems and pathways for reparation in the industry? Because um, that's something that, you know, we need to focus on and do a lot more work around as well.
0: That touches on exactly what I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, because you come up, in a group of social justice advocates online right which is not the language that you use to describe your work right Right. like on your website in your bio necessarily you know like some people (laughs) i'm already giggling at us because some people feel like they need to say everything is resistance and revolutionary right Um, But that's not how you talk about it. But then when you begin to describe your work, Mm -hmm. you're totally weaving in reparations and access and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to ask you, like, if someone were to say, what is a wellness person doing in this, doing in this neighborhood of social justice? How would you answer that question?
2: Well, I personally believe that all forms of systemic oppression impact one's ability to be well. Okay, like, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't care who agrees or disagrees with me. That's just the Mm -hmm. point and the modus operandi that I come from. Um, All systemic oppressions impact one's ability to be well. If you are sitting at home right now worrying about how you're going to pay your bills or how you're going to eat Mm -hmm. your next meal, that's going to impact your mental Mm -hmm. health, right? That's going to impact your ability to move. That's going to impact a bunch of things. If you are um you know experiencing racism or um things around food yeah. apartheid, that's a p- impacting your ability to be well and so I think when people yeah. look at this, they think it as a separate thing, but like you know you mm-hmm. know it's actually intrinsic in terms of the overall way and in terms of how we function right and so for me yeah. um with my background in like community development, it's, it was just very like a no brainer for me to be able to be like, Hey, like I come from, you know, a community. Um, I grew up, you know, within a culture like Rastafarianism, which is very heavily Mm resistance and very particular about certain things, um, and things like that, of that nature. So for me, it just made sense, um, to see the connection between all these systemic pieces and how they impact our ability to be well. And it's yeah. great that we can like acknowledge, okay, there's systemic oppression, gee, gee. but it's another thing for us to be able to say how it's impacting our well-being. And then I would like to take mm. it a step further by saying, okay, this it's impacting our well-being. And then how are we supporting ourselves with through resources um, to be able to address this? Right. Yeah. So the fact that I exist in this space is like, you know. I'm a curvy black girl, thick thighs mm-hmm. save lives, like, you know, <laughs> a yoga teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Who, you know, mm-hmm. likes to lay a meditation over a hip hop beat, right? Mm-hmm. And hold space. And, you know, sometimes I might use them reggae rhythms or whatever, 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 whatever right? Mm-hmm. How that is resistance. But the act mm-hmm. of me being and existing in this space is who I am, is also right. resistance. Right, yeah. that shows others that they belong here. The conversations about why you need to hold space for yourself, why it's okay for you to practice any modality of wellness, like why that is important, is 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 as resistance. The fact that yeah. others who don't look like me see me holding space the way that I do is also resistance, right? Yeah. And then the language around like wellness is our sovereignty, and wellness is pathways to liberation, yeah. um, is resistance, right? And so for me, I cannot separate the two um, because all of us on this call have lived experiences based upon Mm -hmm. our systemic oppressions and the way intersectionality works in our life. And all of us on this call and, you know, in this conversation have had it impact our ability to be well, right? And so that's kind of like why I exist in the space the way that
1: I do. I'd love to hear just more of your story. You mentioned a little bit about how your upbringing has impacted your worldview and um, what you've what you've done. But I just want to hear more about like, where are you from? How did you grow up and how did you get into the space?
2: Uh, (laughs) well, um, I come from the island of Jamaica we won't get gotcha. into we won't get into island politics because that is a very tricky place for us to exist but i come from the beautiful island of jamaica i'm actually a country girl so i grew up in um trelawny i i come from Cockpit mm, country or bush yeah. that's um from the top of a mountain that my great 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 grandfather actually founded called freeman's hall so that's where i come from so it's i think it's kind of like in my dna um my ancestors kind of like put that seed and planted that seed. Um, I am a child of an immigrant. So my mother moved to Canada at a very young age. And I went back and forth between being in Canada and um, Jamaica. Um, she also came to Canada as a nanny. So I grew up in a very different kind of environment in terms of like becoming acutely aware of who I was as a racialized person. Because um, I had that to juxtapose. Like we lived in. Edmonton just like very very white Mm. (laughs) like if you saw another Mm. black person you were happy you're like oh my god right um um, and so like it was really interesting to be in existence in a space like that and then go back home where everybody would look like me right um and so I had that kind of juxtaposition and my godfather he was the Rasta so I would go to a lot of like bingis and things like that um Mm. Talk about Marcus Garvey, Haile Selassie, like all that um, was kind of mm-hmm. part of like how I grew up and just really being connected to like nature and um, spirituality and, and really having that understanding. And that kind of like helped shape me um, as I grew older. Um, and that's something that's kind of like essentially stuck with me and, um, and something that I really appreciate for it. it just kind of helped shape me who I am. Right. Um, mm. My my mom was also very like into history, so I learned. I spent a lot of nights listening to like historical details, which I thought were un, not relevant. Um, but now I I realize, like how important those conversations were.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and you know, she was a very. Uh, she grew up in England, so she was a very British Jamaican. If you know what that you know what that means. Right? Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. you know, having that and just me being very political, um, but she always fostered that. She she used to tell me I was born in the wrong era. She's like, you should have been born like when the Black Panther Party. (laughs) Like my mom was just like, you are just that kid. I don't know how that happened. Um, And that's just something that, you know, I I took forward with me. I was planning to go to law. I actually was planning to go to law school to become an international uh, lawyer, specifically focusing on Africa because I majored in African studies and equity studies and political science. Um, So I wanted to do stuff around like... um, war crimes and stuff like that in Africa, yeah. I realized that, you know, having a kid and trying to be a lawyer wasn't going to work out for me. And so I mm-hmm. kind of shifted and pivoted my direction into um, working with uh, youth in particular, in some of uh, yeah. the more marginalized neighborhoods in Toronto. And I really enjoyed that work. Um, it was something that gave me a lot of uh, passion and love and, and understanding. And I felt like I could relate a lot to my students. Um, and so I spent a lot of time doing community development work, eventually transitioning into doing like consulting um, and things of that nature. And how I ended up in yoga was basically because, you know, we spent a lot of times in community work and advocacy and planning and all that around writing grants and, you know, all these things around programming to address, you know, why this mm-hmm. these kids going to be in a gang or whatever. But no one really mm-hmm. does the work around um, the sustainability part. So we, we get these two-year funding programs. It's really great. And then what happens, right? And then mm-hmm. also people aren't really necessarily supported with tools and actual resources that are tangible to support their well being. Yeah. And I had yoga as a practice that was um, something that was helping me. Um, my mom got really sick. She ended up get, being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so yoga was a tool that helped me get through that um, and literally saved my life at that time. And yeah. uh, I just was bringing it to work. And sharing it with the youth that I was working with, and then the parents came to me and were like, "Hey, what are you doing? Can you teach us?" And then I was just like, "I'm just going to go to school and get my teacher training. I got a scholarship, so I feel like the universe and my ancestors were always having my back." And uh, the rest is kind of history. And this is where I am today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, how do you feel about the word resilience and how people use that for for us? And I'm me knowing more about your personal story too like how do you feel but because that's what I like I hear your story and I think wow like look at how much you've accomplished look at how much you're continuing to do you know and I almost called you resilient and I was like okay let me pause there for a second
2: yeah I feel like how do I say this resilience is a word that like I have a love-hate relationship with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, people are saying that in a way to compliment me, but then also it's kind of like you're saying that in relation to the struggles that I've gone through. Right. Right. And right. so my that is always on the periphery. Like that's what quantifies me as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I struggle with that. Um and also sometimes I feel I struggle with that because it doesn't allow me the space to lean into all the other things that i'm feeling yeah. right mm-hmm. um because the expectation there for therefore for me is to show up and be like the strong person mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. you know i tell my kids all the time i don't have all the answers i don't know everything like and i'm right. not as strong as y'all think i am like i can't right. do this right but right. when you call someone resilient or and you equate it to strength and all these things it strips them of all the other parts of the essence of who they are and their identity. Right. Yeah. And so, and then it changes people's perceptions and understandings of how I'm allowed to show up. Right. Because when I show mm-hmm. a moment of weakness or say like, yes. hey, I'm struggling, then people are like, well, why? Like, that's not who you are. Or like, you know, you're this, like, you know what I mean? And so it doesn't allow me the freedom to be able to be in a full expression of myself. Like we're using mm-hmm. yoga full expression yeah. right I'm not I'm exactly. not allowed that full expression sometimes
0: okay I want to come back to that I want to come back to to resilience but first I want to ask you because you are at a very interesting juxtaposition right now like being a wellness expert a wellness professional
2: mm-hmm.
0: right but recently with yeah. a diagnosed uh, chronic illness mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if you would be willing to talk about that some, Mm -hmm. and then I want to come back to, to ask you a, a question about resilience.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, in, on February 14th, Valentine's day, I got a phone call from my doctor letting me know that I had multiple sclerosis. There's a whole bunch of series of events that led up to that. I lost vision in my eye, my left eye, um, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I was hit with you've got, we mul- you, you think you have multiple sclerosis. And I was like, how? Like, I'm this girl who, like, look, I got my Reishi Coco right here. Mm. I, you know, I, I, I practice yoga, I breathe, I meditate, I do all mm. these things. Like, how the heck did I get multiple sclerosis? So, um, you, know, you know, my, my family doctor and, and subsequent neurologists were like, yeah, you definitely have lesions on your brain and you definitely have multiple sclerosis. And also that idea of like absence, you know not understanding that mm. like black people can get ms i was very I, like the only person i knew who had ms was Malta, montel williams or something like that who was black i'd never seen mm-hmm. other black people get ms so i was very mm-hmm. ignorant to this understanding because to me it was something that was seen as white people only get that predominantly white women right. right and so you know it was just this weird space for me to be in um and then like you know i i held on to that for a while um, because. You know, my whole entire livelihood centers around this idea of movement and, and, and controlling my ability to breathe and my, you know, nervous system and all these things. And then yeah. to have an understanding of the fact that my immune system is attacking my brain and literally eating holes in my brain was a lot. Um, yeah. Because I'm in wellness. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I sat with that for a little while and then I decided to have an open conversation about what that means for me as a black woman um, in this space in wellness mm-hmm. and acknowledging the fact that I have a hidden disability, right? I have a chronic yeah. illness that impacts my ability to be well. And I also, you know, have taken some time to explore the idea of like the roles in which trauma and existing in this body as a, you know, black woman, what mm-hmm. what, do, what does that mean? Right. And so, you mm-hmm. know, it's been a very interesting place for me to navigate because I have faced a lot of challenges navigating the health industrial complex system as a black woman. Um, yeah. You know, I'm pretty articulate so I can advocate, um, but I faced a lot of challenges advocating for myself within this space. Um, mm-hmm. And then also juxtaposing that against this concept I've talked about this before of like in wellness we talk about healing healing healing
1: mm-hmm. and li-
2: coming to terms with the fact that I have a disease that I can't heal right I have a disease that every day I wake up and it's something different mm-hmm. right one day I can walk one day I can't today I'm not gonna lie I struggle getting up and down the stairs so you know yeah. my room is has been my little den for for, for the moment Um, And so, you know, it's just been a really interesting place. And then thinking about how I could use my platform to amplify the stories of other black women who may not have access to the resources and the tools, who may not be able to articulate their stories in the ways. Right. And since I've come out and talked about that, I've had lots of people, lots of black women reach out to me. Lots of people who are people of color reach out to me saying thank you for saying this thank you for talking about this yeah. thank you for being vulnerable and, and letting people know of like the challenges that we face um because black women are the highest group of women who are being diagnosed with this um with multiple sclerosis right wow. um there is a gap in terms of understanding access to resources and supports when it comes to like medicine or disease modifying treatments right um, and there's an uh, there's a gap in terms of studies done to address the ways in which you can treat someone with multiple sclerosis who is Black. And Mm. Black women have um, a stronger propensity to have more deficiencies when it comes to multiple sclerosis. So not only are we being diagnosed at a higher rate, but then we also have um, our, our, our cases or incidences of being diagnosed and having strong MS or like really bad MS is more pronounced than in our white women counterparts.
0: Mm. so first off I mean this sounds incredibly hard to me not just the diagnosis but because of what you do you know and and you continue to do it you continue to show up (laughs) you know I I and so I don't even want to call this resilience. I want to know, what do you call this? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like, what do you call what you're doing?
2: I call this and I told my friends this a long time ago, I've decided to make friends with this disease because not Mm -hmm. only does it impact my ability to show up and be a wellness entrepreneur, this impacts my ability to show up and be Rebecca. Right. So like, Mm I'm a mom, right. Right. Like I'm a friend, right. Like, I'm so many other things. And so not only has this impacted my ability to um, you know, show up and be this yoga teacher, this person who's gonna make you get into the zone through meditation yeah. or breath work, but it's impacted my ability to cook dinner, right? Mm-hmm. Get up out of bed to like drop my kids to basketball practice. It's impacted my ability yeah. to hang out with my friends, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm in a space of, processing grief, right? The grief of like, you know, I, I met someone and we were having a conversation and they said something about my MS. And I said to them, you know, I wish you met me when I was 100% Rebecca. Cause you're just yeah. getting like 50, 60% Rebecca. Cause 100% Rebecca was a vibe. Not to say that 60% <laughs> Rebecca isn't, but like 100% Rebecca was a vibe, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because like I have suffered from fatigue. I suffer from Mm -hmm. weakness. I suffer from all these things. And so, you know, um, I made a conscientious decision to make friends with this disease. Because if I approach it any other way, I just won't be in a good space. I've decided like, this is, I have MS. I'm going to make friends with this disease. We're going to coexist in this body, right, together. Mm -hmm. We're going to find things that will help me Navigate and work, and maybe hopefully re- reduce and minimize the impacts of what this disease looks like and how it shows up for me. Um, but we're still going to continue to live. We're not going to let this slow you down. And that's kind of also why I was really intentional. Like, Andre, you know, you see me like I'm in the gym. Like, I, I, I did yeah. all these things to lead up before I started talking about having MS. So people could see me in the gym lifting mm-hmm. weights, people could see me doing certain things. I still showed up and taught classes. Like I taught one class a week after I had lost use of my legs for a month because, you know, mm. um, you know, I took about of steroids and ended up gaining my leg use of my legs. But like I did all those things because the other part that people don't talk about besides like the grief of losing you, where you were at is the fact that the conversations and the reactions of people change towards you. Mm. Then it becomes a conversation of like my inability of what I can and mm. cannot do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you fall down the rabbit hole of looking at anything about MS. It's a very degenerative disease. Right. And so, like, my conversations with friends even shifted because then it became more of like a pity party than anything Mm -hmm. else. And so I I just really felt like it was important for me to control the narrative of how MS is for me. And so, um, and then what does that mean as a wellness practitioner showing up in this space? Like, how it's allowing me to think about the language that I use. How can I m- make my classes more accessible? Right. Like I totally understand what specificity feels like because I'm mm-hmm. specific all the time, but yeah. how that has sh- shaped me as a teacher too, as well. So i have mm-hmm. I'm, I welcome in the lessons that this is teaching me. Um, and I, and I, and I live with that every day. And I, and I, I'm not sitting here and pretending I don't have bad days because I do. Um, I'm not sitting here and pretend that I don't cry because I do. Um, I don't sit here and pretend that I don't get angry or frustrated because or, you know, say, why me? Because I have and I will and I will continue to. But at the same time, I'm also thankful for the fact that, like, uh, I have this opportunity to share this experience with others to amplify what this means for others who may not be in a position to do that.
1: Are there any practices you're willing to share with us of like how you deal with that grief when it's coming? Because and selfishly, I would like to know any practices to deal with just anger. Because um, like we were saying at the start of the show, you know, we're we're having a heavy day and I'm feeling a lot of anger. Um, and I've, I've been having a, a, a difficult time figuring out what to do with it. Um, and any wisdom you have to share, I would appreciate.
2: Um, so some of the practices that I used for like just handling all these things, first and foremost, Lama Rod Owens has this really good around love and rage and that anger comes from a place of hurt. Right. Um, so just really acknowledging where that anger comes from. I think that, you know, especially as people of color, um, we're, we we suffer so much from post-traumatic stress. That we don't even recognize, and so it lives in our body, right, and so you know anything like breathwork, for instance, um anything somatic and if you're able to to get outside and move your body or ground yourself in nature um but I also am the person that's like hold space for those feelings if you're mad, be mad, honor that, like talk about it, and whether that's with a friend or writing it out i I do a lot of writing, um talking about how I feel um Sometimes I'll call a friend and say, "Do you have the capacity for me to be able to, or the bandwidth to hear me vent?" So I just got to get this off my chest. Um, and meditation has been something that's been really helpful for me too, as well. Um, you know, just basically all the tools that like, um, and sometimes that means like for me also like standing in the shower and just having a good cry, right? Um, I also have amazing friends for when I feel like these things. I'm like, "Oh, I feel like I want to cry." My friends are like, "Go cry." <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that because we're stuck in this space of trying to be like resilient or the strong black woman or the model minority and all these things that people label us, right. We've kind of siphoned ourselves into these little silos where we're not allowing ourselves to feel all the feel. Right. And so, and we're also taught that like being sad or being angry is such a bad thing when it's actually just a part of showing up and being a human. Right. And we're humans being being human. Right. And so, like, really honoring and and knowing those things. I try to, like, um, stay away from things that, you know, cost a lot of money because, again, there's no way for people for me to promote certain things. Right. But like, I just really try to use accessible tools that, you know, our ancestors gave us. Right. Um, As a means to be able to nourish myself in whatever supportive ways that I feel like I need at that time.
0: We're running low on time. I feel like we've already kind of talked about this, mm. but I'm still gonna ask anyway.
2: Uh-huh.
0: For those of you listening who hate change, uh, <laughs> we we always end with this. Inner, end with this question. Um, so, Rebecca,
2: uh-huh.
0: what keeps you going? What makes it worthwhile to work through all of this and continue doing? To continue showing up.
2: Uh, well, I have a few things that make it worthwhile uh first, I'll start off by saying my kids um uh they're my three hearts that live outside of my body. um mm-hmm. they give me reason to just wake up every morning and be well, I might get a little suclimped sorry um, it's okay. um, but also community um yeah. i I just believe in community so much. I feel that you know I come from a culture and I come from a place where you know, I got in trouble at school and everybody on my way home would like, you know, let me know that they knew that I was in trouble. So by the time I got to my grandma's house, you know, I was, I I already had been disciplined by everybody along that path. Right. (laughs) Um, And stuff like that. But community is what gives me life. Like community is a life force for me. And um, I have always just been that person who had uh, from a very young age decided that I just wanted to one, be able to look at myself in the mirror every day and see myself and say, like, how have I left this place a better place? And I okay. think motherhood has also helped shape that for me just because it's provided me with the opportunity to say, like, I don't want my children or anybody's children because I'm I have my three physical children, but I have a whole bunch of kids. Like right now, there's like mm-hmm. ten kids in my living room right now. Um, mm-hmm. But like, you know, who also are my children. Right. Um, yeah. Um, how could I lead the world a better place for them? And for me, it's always a been bit, a bit about like, we are here and my purpose is change. Like, I believe I was born here right. to uh, change. So for me, it's all yeah. about that community and my children and just holding space the way that I do is important.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's been great. And thank you all for listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast again. You know, we're going to put Rebecca's information in the show notes. I'm going to turn it over to Ross and he'll tell you all about, ah, damn it. I forgot to tell you all about Patreon at the beginning, but he'll tell you all about it in a moment. And um, you'll hear from us next week.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trisha's is at trish's music that's spelled t-r-i-s-h-e-s music on instagram tiktok and twitter andre is at the andre henry on instagram and tiktok and at andre henry on twitter catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on spotify if you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of andre and Trisha's conversation you can join the patreon at www.patreon.com slash henry thanks again and we'll see you next time